This is a Federal News Network podcast. Two federal science agencies have together launched a plan to bolster U.S. strength in a field known as quantum information science and technology. The Office of Science and Technology Policy, part of the White House crew, and the National Science Foundation partnered with a group called the National Q-12 Education Partnership to, as they put it, explore training and education opportunities in quantum. Here with what's going on and why it's important, the National Science Foundation Director, Dr. Setraman Panchanathan. Dr. Panch, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom, and good to be with you. And this must be important if the director is taking a personal interest in this particular program. So tell us what is quantum, quantum computing and science, and why does it matter so much? Thank you so much, Tom. We can look at quantum from different perspectives. For example, in physics, it means a smallest non-divisible amount of a physical property, such as energy, for example. And at that scale, the rules of nature behave very differently from how they behave at the scale of you and me. From a policy perspective, education, popular science and technology, and others, quantum is more often used as a jargon for quantum information science and engineering, or referred to as QISC sometimes also called QIST, but T's for technology. This use of quantum essentially connotes a set of disciplines that are involved, physics, material science, chemistry, computer science, engineering, mathematics, and so on. So in collaboration with industry, that you're using unique properties that exist at quantum scale to develop practical applications, such as quantum computers, quantum sensors, and quantum communication networks. In this context, you often hear about quantum education or quantum workforce as other variations on this theme too. And this is a technology that China is pursuing. And when we get down to the level of quantum mechanics used in quantum calculation, what can it do that we can't do now? The speed of computing that you can do, the speed at which you can do this, the scale at which you can do this, the energy consumption that goes with it that is at a much lower energy consumption. All of these make the future of computing exceedingly exciting. We can solve mega problems, huge problems, whether it is related in relation to climate or predictive properties like the prediction of a pandemic, for example, you know, working with the human genome data and a whole host of things where you can actually process things at speed and at scale. And that's what makes this very exciting. Clearly, there are many countries who are also pursuing the approaches to enhancing their capacities and capabilities and technologies in quantum, because it's a leading edge technology. It's a future industry, if you want to look at it that way. We have to be in the vanguard of how we make sure that we are not only you know, producing the research, the advanced research concepts, but also translating them into technologies, working with industry, but most importantly, training this diverse workforce that is capable of engaging in this new area, which is not just a disciplinary area, as I said earlier. It is an interdisciplinary area by bringing together multiple disciplines. Now, you have several companies that have claimed they are at the quantum computing level and using the units of quantum computing that have come into the parlance. Google, I think, is one. Maybe IBM is one. Maybe Amazon is one. But it sounds like you're talking to something larger than that, which has been hard to verify. So my question is, 
Isn't this what they're teaching now anyway in the computer science schools? So when you teach in a computer science school, I'm a computer scientist myself, you might see one facet of quantum computing as it pertains to the computer science aspects of it. But when you want to sort of train people in the broadest sense of what quantum means, for example, a quantum engineer must know elements of coding, quantum mechanics, low temperature physics, material science, and electronics in order to build and operate a computer. So as you can see, Tom, it requires training, which brings inspirations from multiple disciplines in training the quantum workforce of the future and quantum researchers of the future. They may pursue research in a particular facet of it, but they need to have the broadest understanding of what it means to work in this area of quantum. So when you talk about the industries, therefore, they're looking for such talent being generated at scale so that we might be in the vanguard of competitiveness. We're speaking with Dr. Setraman Panchanathan, director of the National Science Foundation. The difference here, I guess, is in traditional computer science and electrical engineering. One can proceed relatively free of the other because you can run something in a new programming language on old hardware and new hardware can run software designed for an older piece of hardware. But in this case, it sounds like the nation needs a systems approach to getting to quantum. That's an excellent way of saying it, Tom, a systems approach. That's exactly what it is. Right from you know determining the basic materials to the building of the devices, then the building of the system, then the programming of the system to do the things that you want it to do. All of this requires training and understanding at the scales that we need to. For example, in the quantum workforce, we might need a diverse set of specialists. While they may have this broad set of training and specializations in certain aspects, For example, you could have qualified machinists producing intricate parts to academic researchers exploring the theoretical limits of a quantum scale environment. So because the field is expanding rapidly alongside swift technological progress in quantum computing and networking, the demand for qualified workers is increasing, as you talked about earlier, from industry. But our schools may not always be ready to switch from a disciplinary training to the diverse multidisciplinary one needed here. So industry, academia, and governments alike are facing shortages of qualified people, which means to every problem, there is it's an opportunity, isn't it, Tom? Therefore, the shortage in the QIC workforce opens up opportunities for broadening participation and including, because when you talk about diversity of discipline, so diversity of so many facets that can be brought to this challenge that we are facing right now. So, for example, minority-serving institutions as partners in solving the workforce shortage issue would be a fantastic outcome. So this way, thanks to the disciplinary diversity, QIST and QISC offers unique opportunities to broaden participation and include meaningful activities to include, I use this term, missing millions, the talent that is available in our nation across the broad socioeconomic demographic and the geographic diversity of the nation being brought fully into the workforce and into the research realm and creating new entrepreneurs of the future and robust industries of the future. So that's what I believe this quantum revolution will bring to bear. All right. So now we have an actual program of the NSF and also of the White House and of this group called the Q-12 National Education Partnership. What is going to happen under this trilateral type of agreement? So the National Q-12 Education Partnership, as you outlined, is a partnership of OSTP, NSF, and key community stakeholders, including industry, 
professional societies and academia. So it takes all of the above in terms of coming together to build this future. So it builds upon efforts spearheaded by OSTP and NSF to develop nine key QIS concepts that can be introduced to and adapted for computer science. You talked earlier about what can be done to augment these disciplines, adapted for computer science, mathematics, physics, and chemistry courses throughout middle and high schools. So the work focuses on helping America's educators ensure a strong quantum learning environment from providing classroom tools for hands-on experiences to developing educational materials to supporting pathways to quantum careers. So together as a partnership that you talked about, we hope to foster a range of training opportunities to increase the capabilities, diversity, and number of students who are ready to engage in the quantum workforce. So as I said earlier, this partnership provides teaching materials, curriculum development frameworks, learning and teaching resources, informative events, and coordination for industry involvement, ultimately creating opportunities for both teachers and students. You have to have the teachers capable of imparting this knowledge in order to have students interested in it. So again, it sounds like you need a vertical approach from student all the way up through, say, faculty and administration of some of these institutions. Exactly, Tom. You, you, you brought out the point. It's precisely what it is. It's at all levels that we have to address this. So it is not just at the research level. It is not just as a teacher training level, all the way up to student levels. How do we excite students to be able to engage in this quantum revolution? Right? For example, when this plan was released, we also announced a 2.2 million grant supplement to the Montana, Arkansas, Monarch, NSF Quantum Foundry, led by the Montana State University and the University of Arkansas to create the Arkansas-Montana-South Dakota 2D Quantum Photonics Alliance, 2D QP Alliance. This alliance extends the Monarch Quantum Foundry that we had already funded to the tune of about $20 million, which focused on novel materials and devices for future quantum computing and networking as well as chip-scale integrated quantum photonics devices. So what we're trying to do here is by these augmentations, and as you know, University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff is a historically black university. And so it's thrilling to see how we might bring opportunities to all institutions to be able to engage, develop the appropriate curriculum, train the teachers, and also the foundry being such that, that it is accessible to any fifth or eighth grader who is excited about wanting to you know, play with quantum and learn more and get excited. I call it the quantum spark. How do we get them to get that? So these kinds of infrastructure investments then make possible those kinds of things happening also. Exciting students, even at the high school you know, or even before, and then university students, and then building the research capacity at the same time. All of this happening at the same time. So, in fact, we, NSF released a Dear Colleague letter on advancing quantum education and workforce development, which essentially opens up existing programs that NSF has with tribal colleges and universities called TCUP program, TCAP, and NSF's Innovative Technology Experiences for Students and Teachers, or ITEST program, and NSF Includes program, among many other programs, to activities that broaden participation in quantum workforce and education. Now, early in the space race, back in the late 1950s, People saw Sputnik go overhead, and there was the majesty of the great expanse that inspired a generation of people to go into science and engineering in the space race. You can't see quantum. You can't touch it. And so how do you get young kids interested in it, do you think, that say, wow, that's what I want to do? 
the way you do that is you bring up an excellent point. The way you do that is by communicating the excitement of quantum by actually them looking at the outcomes of what a quantum computing can do or a quantum sensor can do. You know, these days people are working with, you know, clearly with these phones that they carry all around, right? Which is, you know, trillions and millions of transistors and devices. So what you do is you say, this is what a quantum computer will do. This is, you know, contrasting it to what it is today in your handout. What are the kinds of things it will do? How will it reach, change the whole way in which we look at the future in terms of concrete examples? So the more we talk about it in terms of outcome terms, we can get people more excited. In addition to you know, being able to see things, it's about experiencing things. Dr. Setraman Panchanathan is director of the National Science Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It was good talking to you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, but people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.